0: View from the C-Suite is brought to you by Altron, technology partners in your digital transformation journey. For more info, visit Altron.com. Altron, there when it matters. This is Classic Business with Michael Avery on Classic 1027 in Gauteng and Fine Music Radio in Cape Town.
1: Time for your view from the C-suite in partnership with Eltron, which is all about bringing you closer to the business leaders around the boardroom table, be they CEOs or founders or CIOs or chairs and really what makes them tick, what keeps them up at night, what gets them out of bed every morning and drives them to excel. I first met my next guest at a financial inclusion conference uh, It was a couple of years ago. He was head of uh, the Strategy Management Office of Time Digital, back then by Commonwealth Bank. Uh, Since then the bank has been bought by African Rainbow Capital and launched as the country's first fully fledged digital bank and he was appointed as CEO a few weeks ago. It's Tariq Kiran, and it's a great pleasure,
0: Tariq, to have you on the show this week. Good to see you again. (laughs) Michael, it's good to speak to you. It's amazing how time flies, eh?
1: It is amazing how time flies, and you seem to get younger. I don't know how you do it. (laughs) That's
0: (laughs) flat. Well,
1: for someone with two kids and balancing uh, all that you do, I want to find out how you do that. Uh, Before we talk about Time Bank and uh, obviously the phenomenal growth that it's experienced so far, You've got an MSc from the University of Cape Town. Tell me about how you found yourself uh, in the world of fintech and digital banking. Did you always dream that you'd be a banker in the world of finance and bridging this
0: technology and financial divide? Absolutely not. I couldn't have imagined it in my wildest dreams. In fact, there's a different story around how I ended up doing engineering masters. It it was literally, I was married at the time and there was a scholarship and I needed to make some money to feed my family. That's how I got into engineering. Necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But um, coming back to your question, I started working as an engineer. And then quickly moved into the space of technological innovation. And that led me to drift into, I think, just Deloitte at the time. And Deloitte had a global innovation business that was building new corporates for new uh, ventures, rather, for existing corporates. And then I followed my passion more deeply in technology innovation and worked for one of the universities for a while. And then went back to Deloitte. And that's really after having started a few businesses, including Rand Uranium uh, for Harmony Gold, which is quite a a 3.2 billion Rand capitalization project. Uh, with Pomozi at the time and a few other businesses. I then ended up consulting to Standard Bank to create community banking, which was a digital banking business, delivering financial inclusion to low income earners at the time. And that was my first exposure to financial inclusion.
1: Community banking, what started out as what seems to be on the fringe is now very much on the centre of what banks are trying to do. They're trying to bank the unbanked. It's about financial inclusion and if you look at some of the unbanked rates across not only South Africa but uh, the broad African continent, there is a lot of runway for growth. At that time you're doing community banking for Standard Bank what uh, led you to this idea of finding a fully digital bank? Who did you do it
0: with first? I never actually worked for the bank so I consulted through Deloitte. At the time Standard Bank realized that in order to bank what was then the unbanked, there were about 17 million unbanked consumers in the country at the time, they realized that they needed a totally different business model. Not only a product tweak or a pricing tweak Or a slightly different distribution channel. But fundamentally, the way that that business should make money is different. And the model was quite simple it was using a mobile money. A platform at the time accessible through ussd and allowing customers to get cash in and out of the account through independent retailers or spicer shops at the time through sort of a handheld device and
1: that is part of the innovation if you look at the way you've rolled out time bank is through kiosks is through partnerships but yeah. Tariq, african banks are poised for major retail growth so look at the numbers uh, from mckenzie as of 2017 almost 300 million banked africans that's up from 170 million in 2012 And uh, that figure is predicted to grow to around 450 million by 2022. So in the next three years, it's still only a third of the African population. So, a massive opportunity for branchless banks and for fintech companies alike. The issue is how you address the opportunity because I think there are probably three primary routes to market here. Either you, as an incumbent, you can digitally transform your existing operations or you can collaborate with mobile network operators or fintech companies to deliver these sort of mobile financial services. we are seen MTN uh, follow that route. Right. Or you can build a digital bank from scratch, which is really what you've done
0: With Time Digital, take me back to those earlier days, which was 10 years
1: ago. I mean, you were
0: well ahead of the curve on this. We've tried this now in three different organizational constructs, if you like. So the first was obviously within an existing big bank. The second was actually... As a fintech, so we started time as a fintech. We were using somebody else's banking license at the time. And we designed, built, and operated mobile money for MTN. So that was your classic fintech model. I've got strong views around whether fintechs can get scaled in this country. And in order to get scaled, they have to partner with existing larger organizations that can bring them either batches of customers or brand association or access to new markets. And that in itself has constraints, the model we now have is, I believe, the model that will work, which is we are a fully regulated bank, which means in the long term we will be capital efficient because we'll take deposits for the public and again make them available to the public uh, for the purposes of, of borrowing. But also we are well resourced, yet we are nimble and digital which means that we can respond to our customers' needs extremely quickly. So, you almost have the best of both worlds. You attract the benefits of being a small, fleet footed uh, fintech if you like, or digital bank or or what we now refer to as neobanks globally, but you've got the resource and the networks of a lot more established organization.
1: I was having lunch with Listen Magy today and uh, he looked at the idea of a a fintech bank, a digital bank, and he said, it's still very difficult, Michael, to compete against the incumbents. What are the challenges to break into a market as we've seen Capitech do? Everyone poured scorn on Capitech 10 years ago.
0: Look at where it is now. But what are those challenges? So I think the first thing is that the unbanked Bank population has reduced significantly in this country. But that being said, most of the bank population is still underserved or severely underserved, right? So there's significant headroom in the market. Now, we've looked at the banking landscape and we asked ourselves why are ordinary South Africans' needs not being met? And we distilled it down to essentially three aspects. The one is banking in this country is still incredibly expensive, For the most part, it's incredibly inconvenient to use, and they are opaque and complex. So what we did is we set to differentiate ourselves in each of those categories. So on the cost side of things, we are the lowest cost transactional bank account in market. Most of our transactions are either free or two rand, some are four and eight rand. Cost you nothing to get the bank account, cost you nothing to keep the bank account if you choose not to use it. But it's not only about cost, we also give value back to customers. And and we've got a wonderful savings product which offers incredibly appealing interest rates, up to 10% if you Mm. keep the money in there longer than 90 days, immediately available and liquid. And that customers have responded to incredibly well. We're actually seeing the average balance per active customer on our goal-safe product, increasing organically with time.
1: With the cap on the maximum amount that you can put right. into that.
0: Yes, of course. So at our highest cap is 100,000 And then we also give customers additional value back in the form of Smart Shopper points. And as you know, Michael, Smart Shopper from Pick and Pay is one of the most revered and largest loyalty programs in the country. It's part of
1: your strategy to partner with Pick and Pay, yes. to roll out these kiosks with Pick and Pay, which uh, is once again, just indicative of uh, the kind of world that we're living in, where, you know. Uh, it's all about collaboration, where you stick to your specialization and rely on partners who are really good uh, with their footprint and distribution. Then along came Patrice Matsepi, and you know you built up this model, you proved the concept, and he's African Rainbow Capital, who are now your majority shareholder. They bought the business from Commonwealth Bank of Australia back in November last year. How did that deal come about? What necessitated that transaction?
0: Commonwealth Bank of Australia ran, unfortunately, into conduct and regulatory issues in their home country. And at the same time, they had a new board, a new chairperson, and a new CEO. And they took a decision to simplify their banking portfolio, both in their home country as well, but particularly outside of Australasia. And we felt casualty to that. At that time, African Rainbow Capital was already a 10% empowerment shareholder with an option to claw more equity. So it made absolute sense for both parties that ARC take up the rest of the position so that's how the deal came about i must say that the timing around that was in fairness tumultuous Because this happened in June last year and we were right on the critical path of building and launching the bank and I was busy overseeing that program. So I then also played an intimate sort of role in securing the sale of the bank as well. So we had to sell the bank and then launch the bank immediately afterwards as well as secure a transitional arrangement with Commonwealth Bank of Australia because we were reliant on one or two pieces of operational capabilities from them. So that was last year. One or two more (laughs) greyheads to account for that. And uh, subsequently,
1: you've also received investment from Ethos Artificial Intelligence Fund. They've come in and invested 200 million on the back of that. Uh, What does private equity bring to the table for you
0: now? That deal in particular was incredibly important for us. So over and above the capital injection, the AI fund of Ethos only invests in businesses that will have a disproportionate stepwise change due to artificial intelligence and therefore disproportionate return on equity as a consequence of that. So what they bring us is uh, incredible depth and strategic horsepower in the world of data analytics and artificial intelligence, which is core to our time bank strategy. So that was important for us. The shareholders are looking at bringing other strategic investors on board as well. And largely this business to break even will be funded out of equity.
1: We talk about AI all the time, almost as if it's a throwaway term. How are
0: you using artificial intelligence uh, in the time bank strategy? This is actually part of the business that I'm incredibly proud of. So when we talk about digital banking, I think All of us have slightly different mental models of what a digital bank is. For me, it's quite simple. You try and drive as much of your customer engagement to digital channels, right? But in doing that, you actually digitize the process layer. So if you look at our kiosk onboarding process, right? That's a digital process at the physical channel, if you like. But as a consequence of that, you don't need thousands of human beings in the middle office looking at pictures and ID books and onboarding customers, it's a straight-through, real-time process. Now, one of the consequences of that is that your information lands in one repository. That's the way we've designed the bank. That repository sits in the cloud, in Amazon Web Services, and we've overlaid that repository with the latest technology analytics workbench, if you like. So, so what we are able to do is we can all sorts of information, Uh, In the business, we can see channel information, we can see core banking information, we can see all the the different forms of transactional data, and we can run various types of models in that through this analytics workbench. So one of the things we are doing now is real-time messages to customers. So for example, once a customer onboards at a kiosk, we are able to contact that customer in real-time of this technology that I've just described and ask that customer to deposit money the same time at the till point, for example. And we're hoping it's that sort of access to information and real-time response that will allow us to drive efficiency in the business in that particular in the case of that particular example will allow us to push up our activity rates mm. um, in the business.
1: And I know your next strategy, you've, you've built out the core transactional capabilities of the bank to 600,000 customers at the moment. You're now going into a much higher margin lending part of the business. Also a lot more risk in that space. Uh, We've just had uh, the government uh, pass the bill that's going to not expunge certain amounts of debt, but uh, certainly raise uh, barriers to lending into that entry level of the market. How do you plan on de-risking your entry into the lending side of the market?
0: So the first thing is you're absolutely right. We need to be careful here because the South African market is heavily over-indebted. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's over indebted, right? There are still many pockets of what I call sort of low credit risk pockets. We've identified a few pillars of which we can compete. The one is on price, believe it or not. So we will be able to do real risk-based pricing on unsecured lending. And the way we do that is we actually augment traditional credit bureau data with other forms of data, municipal data, data from the customer's phone app, but most importantly basket data. We have an exclusive arrangement with pick and pay to use basket data for the purposes of credit scoring. And what it will allow us to do is to actually hone down the precise risk profile of a particular customer. What that will also allow us to do, Michael, is to over time create responsible access to what we traditionally refer to as thin file uh, credit bureau customers. And that is because we can see more about the customer's propensity to repay a loan. That's the one component. The other component is in this market, speed to access uh, for customers is important. Next year, we'll be able to issue a personal loan in two minutes if the customer is already banking with us and in seven minutes, if they're not, only because it takes five minutes to open up a bank account, we're not quite there yet. We still need to digitize a component of that. And then the last thing is transparency. We're going to be absolutely transparent with customers when they lend from us what the total cost of borrowing is and so
1: on. The two-minute loan by 2020. Tariq, the last question is, how do you do all of this with a family of two in tow at the same time? How do you strike a work-life balance? Uh, Being a CEO, building out a fintech bank in the country and ensuring that you don't burn out by the time you hit uh,
0: 45? That's such an interesting question, Michael. So I guess part of it is I've always had the fortune or misfortune of working in the cut and thrust of early stage businesses where you require heavy lifting, where you need to work in close proximity of the issues and where it's intense. So I've almost become accustomed to this. My family is incredibly supportive. My wife actually sees this as... You know, she does what she does so that I can do what I can do. And I think she'll be comfortable with me saying this. This is also her way of giving back to society. And then the last thing I say is that it's never perfect, right? We're always striving for balance. And the funny thing about balance is you always find yourself typically overcorrecting. Yeah,
1: so, absolutely. And yeah. sometimes I just find myself leaning up against the table to catch my <laughs> breath. Tariq, as always, a great pleasure chatting to you. And I look forward to watching the strategy evolve or unfold, I should say, and evolve over the coming months and years. Take care.
0: Always lovely to chatting to you, Michael. That sure. was
1: Tariq Karan showing his View from the C-Suite, brought to you by Ultron Technology Partners in your digital transformation journey. For more information, visit them at altron.com. Ultron, there when it matters.
0: View from the C-Suite was brought to you by Ultron, Technology Partners in your digital transformation journey. For more info, visit Ultron.com. Ultron, there when it matters.